This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. In the years leading up to the Civil War, the only thing thriving at the colonial site of Brunswick Town was the overgrown brush crawling up the walls of its ruins. The once thriving port town, the first permanent settlement in the Cape Fear region established in 1726, had been all but abandoned generations earlier. Prior to the Revolutionary War, it was Britain's main port in the North Carolina colony and home to two of its royal governors whose residence in the town effectively made it the colony's capital for a time. One of the country's first active rebellions to the crown, which played out in response to the Stamp Act in 1765 and 1766, was organized and carried out in part by some of the town's residents. Brunswick was the birthplace of the Cape Fear, but by the dawn of the Civil War, Its heyday was history. Competition from a prosperous small town 14 miles upriver, known as Wilmington, was chipping away at the political power and influence that solidified Brunswick's status before the war. Afterward, scorched by the British in a raid and all but desolate, Brunswick town never recovered. A few residents are said to have stayed behind but most left for Wilmington or other communities springing up along the river. In 1842, the site that encompassed the town that would found this region was sold for just $4.25. An outright steal, considering the promise and ambition that once fueled its creation. However, just a few decades later, Old Brunswick would find itself thrust into a bitter new conflict, one that was being fought for the very soul of the country that its former residents had helped forge. And although it would take some time, Brunswick would eventually see the action of war come right up to its doorstep. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're going to finish up a story that we began last year with our episode on the rise and fall of Brunswick Town. At the time, I intentionally held back the second half of that story so that we could pay full attention to what would become an unforeseen yet pivotal era for the town's site. 
built on top of Brunswick Town, Fort Anderson was second only to Fort Fisher in the strength needed to protect Wilmington from Union invaders in the Civil War. Its earthen mounds would wind through the forgotten town, and fragments of its past would suddenly become necessary materials for the fight at hand in the present. These two stories, separated by nearly a century, became physically intertwined as the Confederacy used the once sought-after perch on Brunswick's shores to ward off the enemy at any cost, all leading to what could have been a clash of armies on the banks of the Cape Fear. As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. This week's guests are two of our returning favorites, Jim McKee and Chris E. Fonville Jr., And in a first for Cape Fear Unearthed, be on the lookout in your podcast feeds later this week for a special bonus episode where we share what is perhaps the most famous story to come out of Fort Anderson. But for now, sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we resurrect the story of how Brunswick Town became Fort Anderson. When the Confederacy began scouting for the most advantageous places from which to protect Wilmington from a Union advance up the Cape Fear River, they pretty early on recognized why colonists, more than a century earlier, had found the former Brunswick Town site to be so desirable. For the colonists, the immediate access to the river was vital to the import of supplies and resources needed for the region's foundational community. In the height of the Civil War, Southern forces knew that this access to the river would be key in patrolling and controlling who came up and down the waterway. Less than a year into the war, the Union had already began to make its way down the Carolina coast, having already seized Newburn, less than a hundred miles from Wilmington. If the Confederacy wanted to maintain its foothold in southeastern North Carolina and ensure that its railroad supply routes remained open, it had to keep Wilmington out of the hands of the enemy. The more forts they built along the river, the better chance they had. Beyond the benefits of the river, the untamed wilderness that surrounded Brunswick Town would be a challenge for any invading force to maneuver. And it didn't hurt that Brunswick Town already had a few standing structures that could act as shelter for men stationed at the fort, although these structures had seen better days. By 1862, a small battery had already been built at Brunswick Town, then known as Brunswick Point. But when the Confederacy's leading officer in the Cape Fear, Brigadier General Samuel French, 
paid the small garrison stationed there a visit in March 1862, he found that the land's many attributes were worthy of a larger fortification. In just a matter of days, work had begun on a more substantial system of batteries and entrenchments that would eventually stretch one and a quarter miles in length, all built under the supervision of then 20-year-old Lieutenant Thomas Rowland. By the summer of 1862, nearly 500 Confederate soldiers were housed at the burgeoning fort to construct it, alongside enslaved people from all over the region. In addition to building the massive earthworks, everything from barracks to a medical center had to be constructed. Among their materials were the bricks and ballast stones salvaged from the remaining colonial structures, which were broken down by hand. In his book, To Forge a Thunderbolt, Fort Anderson and the Battle for Wilmington, historian Chris E. Fonville Jr. notes that the work to construct an earthen fort from scratch would grow even more backbreaking and sweat-inducing by the summer months, when sweltering heat and sun beat down on the workers. Mosquitoes plagued their days, and ticks were pulled from their skin. They even had to watch out for alligators and snakes brazen enough to make their way into the worksite. Serving alongside Roland was Colonel William Lamb, a young officer with a mind for fort-making and an eagerness to put it to use. The southern battery that they would build can still be seen at the site today, now reinforced with a gun emplacement and a 32-pounder cannon, as it would have been during the war. But by July 1862, both Roland and Lamb were reassigned. Roland back to his native Virginia, and Lamb to a command position at Fort Fisher. In turn, Major John Hedrick transitioned from Fort Fisher to Brunswick Point. Hedrick would take what Lamb and Roland had started and strengthen it. He even worked with Major General W.H.C. Whiting, recognized as one of the mines behind Fort Fisher's fortifications. The resulting L-shaped earthworks stretched over several homes that once stood at Brunswick Town and ran alongside St. Philip's Church, the sturdy gathering place that had once been the religious epicenter of the region prior to the Revolutionary War. By 1862, all that remained were its four infallible walls, each one three feet thick in brick. This long-standing remnant of the past would go on to inspire the fort's first name. Fonville quotes Roland as saying before his reassignment, quote, On our line of defenses is an old church of the parish in old colonial times, and it has witnessed the struggle of one revolution. We think of calling our battery Fort St. Philip. End quote. It was christened with such a name because, as Fonville puts it, the Confederates saw this war as a second struggle for independence. But Fort St. Philip wouldn't see much of the action that would define this struggle for America's future 
in part because the fort's closer to the mouth of the Cape Fear River, Fisher, Caswell, and Johnson, were deemed more important to stopping any northern advance to Wilmington. Fort Fisher alone was constantly on alert to help blockade runners make it past the Union blockade offshore. As such, it was flooded with at least 500 or more soldiers, while Fort St. Philip would max out at about 200 on any given day, at least until the end of the war. Of those stationed there, many were young men from the Cape Fear region, who enlisted with no experience in war or fort construction. In a way, it was a training ground for this area's next generation. But most days, life was gruelingly boring at Fort St. Philip. The men constantly worked to fortify the earthen mounds and batteries, even though there was no real fighting going on to compromise them. They weren't far enough downriver to see any engagement, and they were also far enough from Wilmington to be removed from any social life. If they weren't fighting to survive disease or hunting and fishing for their food, they were faced with intense boredom and a lack of morale. Fonville cites one soldier who wrote home about life at the fort, calling it a, quote, bleak place to be. But two major things would happen in 1863 that would come to define the fort. One, it was renamed Fort Anderson, likely after Brigadier General George Bergwin Anderson, a descendant of John Bergwin, the influential colonial merchant whose home, the Bergwin Wright House, still stands in downtown Wilmington. Second, and perhaps most importantly, Fort Anderson got its first real orders. In the aftermath of the devastating yellow fever epidemic of 1862 in Wilmington, which had been brought ashore by the blockade runner Kate and claimed at least 654 lives, the Confederacy had buckled down on monitoring its supply vessels coming into the region from international ports in places like Bermuda and the West Indies. To accomplish this, Fort Anderson was made a quarantine station in May 1863. Blockade runners and their crew would anchor at the fort for upwards of a month, but regulations could be flexible depending on how important the cargo was. Although its purpose to the southern calls was stagnant as a quarantine center, Fort Anderson still managed to impress the man atop the Confederate chain of command. On his tour of the region's defenses in 1863, Confederate President Jefferson Davis made a stop at Fort Anderson and was said to have spoke highly of its batteries and trenches. It's also important to remember the irony of Fort Anderson's role in this war and its status as Brunswick Town's second life. In its years of dominance along the Cape Fear River, colonial Brunswick town constantly struggled to maintain supremacy over Wilmington, its ever-growing neighbor that continued to siphon off its power and influence. A century later, the same site would, in effect, 
serve only to protect and defend Wilmington and its importance to the Confederate cause. It wouldn't get a chance to truly play that role until the final months of the war, after Fort Fisher fell under Union control in January 1865. In the months leading up to the attacks on Fort Fisher, Wilmington had increasingly become a desirable target for the Union, a site that it knew it had to capture if it wanted to cripple the Confederacy. But Fort Anderson had been lying in wait for this moment. The earthen mounds and batteries, especially those along the river, were strong, and from a distance on the water would be hard to penetrate without storming on foot. Of course, that's if the Union ships could make it close enough at all. The soldiers at Fort Anderson had basically booby-trapped the river, installing spikes under the water and floating roadblocks filled with ballast stones. Live mines were installed on the water, ready to be tripped by any ships making the approach. And a massive chain was stretched across the river in an attempt to clothesline any vessels brave enough to pass. After Fort Fisher fell, the forts surrounding it were evacuated, and their troops were ordered to move upriver, where hundreds were stationed at Sugarloaf directly across the river from Fort Anderson. These two sites, one on the east side of the river and one on the west, would be the Confederacy's next line of defense. Within days, the shelling of both forts had begun, mostly in an attempt to get the Confederacy to fire back in retaliation and reveal just how much firepower they were working with. But Fort Anderson would hold firm, getting a little reprieve to gather its supplies as cold and rainy weather kept the Union from continuing their bombardment or staging a full-on attack. But at this point, the fort's command was facing an insurmountable problem. As the Union presence on the river grew and more soldiers from other forts flooded Fort Anderson, conditions devolved quickly. A fort built to house a few hundred men was now hosting more than 2,000. Clothing and housing was in short supply. Men slept under hastily constructed tents and any sort of cover that they could devise to shield themselves from the cold and the rain. More than a few regiments reported that their men didn't even have shoes or suitable jackets. With all transport of supplies on the river halted, food was also difficult to muster up. The harsh weather did nothing but act as a further depressant for the men, and it said that drunkenness was rampant. Some soldiers deserted for a spot on the Union line, while others felt that they were just waiting around to lose. For its final stand, Brigadier General Johnson Haygood was assigned command of Fort Anderson. He would gain the post just as the Union began consistently shelling the fort as February 1865 arrived. Most of those shellings were unsuccessful, but it did keep the men on their toes, as the Union's presence 
only grew more worrisome. The final attack, which would be a three-day event, began on February 17th, when Union forces leveled their initial blast at the fort from the river. But they also made their advance on land, having identified that the fort's weakness was its lack of security on the western wilderness that surrounded the site. The Confederates at the fort were pinned in place, with the enemy at both sides. By the end of the first day, the Confederates were essentially pinned in place, with the enemy at both sides. Quickly, they realized that manning the naval and land attacks was not going to be possible with the supplies and men on hand. By the end of the day on February 18th, Haygood wired his superiors with a plan to abandon the fort. At nearly 3 a.m. in the early morning hours of February 19th, the order for evacuation was given. They fled in waves so as not to tip their hand to the Union soldiers resting up for the next day's engagement. But the Union had heard rustling in the fort all night and knew something was up. When they finally stormed the fort on the morning of February 19th, the only things left behind were a few straggling Confederates and all of the fort's artillery, which the evacuees had left behind, intact, in order to sneak out in the cover of night. With this action, the final major port along the Cape Fear River had been taken. Three days later, Wilmington would be captured by the Union, and the rest is history. As we've discussed in many previous episodes, the fall of Wilmington was considered to be a death knell for the Southern cause. The Confederacy would sputter along until its surrender in April, largely due to the lack of supplies that it could no longer receive through Wilmington. What had begun as a promising second life for the Cape Fear's first community had come to a rather unceremonious end. A few shots were fired as the Union poured over the earthen mound at Fort Anderson that morning, but no real engagement was had. However, by intertwining the origin story of this region with its wartime service, it's helped preserve both of these tales for later generations. After all, who can forget the story of the Civil War fort built on the bones of a colonial landmark? Joining me now to talk further about Fort Anderson in the Civil War are two of our favorite guests on the show here. Jim McKee, the site manager of Brunswick Town Fort Anderson State Historic Site in Winnebo, and Dr. Chrissy Fonville Jr., a local historian who literally wrote the book on Fort Anderson with an assist from Jim McKee. Uh, and it is called To Forge a Thunderbolt, Fort Anderson and the Battle for Wilmington. Thank you both so much for coming back. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Always a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm so happy to have you guys back because you both know this story very well. Fort Anderson, you both worked on it. Jim, you work at it every day. Chris, you have a book on it. And so I think this will be an interesting conversation because you two bring 
two different perspectives. I mean, just historian and, and caretaker almost of, of the site now. And But I want to start out with a question that I personally had of, is it unusual to see military forces build a fort of this size on top of something that we now know to be so important to the development of this region, a colonial town. I mean, is, is that unusual or is that just kind of circumstance for what was here in the region? I think it was, it was logic. Um, that town, you know, Brunswick was built on high ground. You go to Fort Johnston, it's built on high ground. Now the town of Southport is around it. So they're looking at it. They're not looking at it what was there before. They're looking at it from you know, a topographical and a strategic. They're looking forward. Right. Yeah. And you know, Brunswick just happened to be in a very strategic place. So it was it was more coincidence. Yeah. But there was there was reasoning, you know, just just because of the ground. Well, it was chosen for a reason before, so it might as well be chosen for a reason now. Yeah. Right. And initially, uh, they built just an artillery battery at the site. Mm-hmm that expanded into the much larger fort mm-hmm. that turned out to be the largest earthen fort or largest fort in the interior of the lower Cape Fear that guarded the water approaches to Wilmington. That's the other reason for building it where it was because the river channel went right by the site. Uh, even today, you can almost reach out and touch those big tankers that go it's by. It's scary, yeah. 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 Oh, no, I've seen them. Yeah, they're very close. But even originally... The channel, the original channel, was only in some places less than 200 feet from the bank. Wow. Even the obsolete 32-pounder guns that were mounted in the fort couldn't miss. And hitting a wooden ship, they're going to do damage because they're point-blank plunging fire. Right. So any uh, enemy vessels that might have crossed the bar at the mouth of the river and come upriver would have had to have passed that site. And that would have been a choke point. Yeah. So it was just an ideal place to build a fortification. It just, you know, looking back on it now, it almost seems kind of disrespectful to put it on top of that. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and, and, because and, I think it compromised the ruins of that town in a way. Well, it did. I mean, you can, if, if you walk out to Fort Anderson, walk into, into the Southern Battery, Battery B, when you walk behind the building, you're on the 1862 grade. And then all of a sudden you drop six to eight feet. Everywhere you just walked was dug out by hand to build those 32-foot-high mounds. Yeah. But they also did something unique in that fort when they built the fort in that the bottom third of those walls are from, were dug or carved out of the living earth. Mm-hmm. So the bottom third is the original ground level, and they just piled the dirt up on top of that. That's one reason why it lasted so long. Uh, we, we might point out that... It looks similar to Fort Fisher Mm -hmm. in that from a bird's or today a drone's eye view, it looks like a big giant number seven with the short shank running parallel to the river where elevated gun batteries, of course, would have protected, the again, the water approaches uh, to the town. And then uh, the long shank of the seven extending for a mile and a quarter to the west, and that uh, protected the Wilmington Road that ran from Smithville up to Wilmington, and uh, would have allowed for uh, infantry to be deployed there mm-hmm. to contest any movement of, of Union forces that might get into the area coming up from the south. Yeah. But even the soldiers, as they built the fort, found colonial artifacts, Native American artifacts and colonial yeah. artifacts. Wow. There are accounts of them finding coins and 
bottles and uh, pottery shards and uh, projectile points. But what did they do with them? They, I mean, in war, I mean, they're not really sitting there to preserve history. So I no. imagine they just cast them aside or kept no, them if no, they were they coins. Kept them. I mean, okay. you, you, Good. you can read uh, periodically, you'll see an account where one of their pastimes is relic hunting. Okay. Because you think about it, I mean, there's, there's, even today, we'll find intact, um, nearly intact bowls, cups, bottles, that sort of thing. Back then, you find an intact bowl or cup, you use it. So, Especially when supplies are scarce as the war goes on. Right. Yeah. But they knew about the town. Oh, yeah, they right. knew. Yeah, this was the, the principal seaport on the Lower Cape Fear until after the American Revolutionary War. So, uh, and there was uh, undoubtedly ruins of some of the houses still there because there were houses mm-hmm. there until the end of the first quarter of the, of the 19th century. Yeah. Um, by some accounts, uh, they were still there in the 1840s. So uh, there would have been ruins of some of the old houses. And they, they must have had you know, a good time going around exploring oh, yeah. the ruins oh, yeah. of the old town because, and finding relics and artifacts. Yeah. Yes, because one of the first things they did while they're building the fort, they got to have somewhere to live. Yeah, they got to have quarters. they got to have warehouses and that sort of thing. So what they're doing, and we find this out through the archaeological record, is they're going through the, the ruins and they're systematically finding the chimney falls and whatnot and removing the intact bricks. Because they're using them. They're, they're using, using them, them. Yeah. yeah, to build their buildings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when we, when we excavate a ruin that was there above ground, we get one of those later ruins, we're lucky if we find an intact brick. They're repurposing this town. They're repurposing in real time it's as, as this is recycling. happening. Yeah, it's like like the like the historic preservation say, historic preservation, the ultimate recycling, that's, and that's what they were doing. <laughs> and that's interesting to think about it in real time because there, as as I read in in your book and, and other accounts, there were they had a lot of time on their hands, oh, so yeah. they were going through as you said relic hunting, but they were also building up what they needed to because mm-hmm. there was really nothing there. They had to dig out all of these mounds. They had to build all of these structures that they needed for the fort and they had to do it by themselves. Yeah. And this is a massive earthen fortification. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Have we ever calculated how many cubic tons of, of dirt are in Paul the Paul Sugars is doing that. Uh, okay. That's, that's an engineer's <laughs> civil engineer. Yeah. yeah I'm going to leave all the math question. to gonna, you guys. I will not handle that. I'm going to determine that. We did uh, figure out that, that the average soldier digging by hand was moving roughly eight to eight and a half cubic yards of dirt a day. Wow. Someone that's really working can move upwards of about 11. A loafer, about five. You just average it out. It's about eight to eight and a half and, yards. And, and look, no, no backhoes, no yeah, bulldozers. No, these are these manpower, these manpower, literal manpower. Shovels, wheelbarrows. And not just the soldiers, but of course, enslaved and eventually free black laborers as well. Well, and there were and hundreds at this certain point. They were working, point. and it was still under construction when it was attacked. Yeah, wow. Well, that's right, because I remember reading that... Um, they were always making updates. They were always... Oh, they're always tweaking. You know, mending, or they were always adding or something. So it was a constant work in progress. And it really changed. It, the, 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 the appearance of the, of the Battery B and what we call the Whitworth Battery and even the land face works complete, were completely altered by what was going on in January and early February of 1865, where they're putting in... Half embrasures on the big gun on the big batteries. Um, they're modifying that one wall behind the visitor center in the church to accommodate the Whitworth rifle. The the troops that are coming in, the infantry, the South Carolina troops from who were veterans of the Army of Northern Virginia in Petersburg, 
they're altering those works to take into account what they learned in Petersburg. So they're constantly altering those those works. So in its infancy, you had what was called the old Brunswick Battery, which was mm-hmm. about 300 yards south of what we know today as Fort Anderson. Mm-hmm. But that was later abandoned. That was built beginning in March of 1862. Uh, and then a guy named uh, Lieutenant Thomas Rowland began building uh, basically just a, a, a rampart from the river to the west, mm-hmm. and he completed that in about six weeks. But it was just uh, an earthen embankment that was about uh, six feet high, yeah. Uh, yeah. behind which you could put light artillery and infantry. Uh, but then over time, uh, when John Hedrick became uh, the commander at the fort, they built the river batteries uh, right along the edge of the Kafir River into uh, you know, a, a massive uh, defense the still kind of when you go out there and you see what's left of it, it's still very imposing. I mean, oh, yeah. it's still really impressive to know that people built that in 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 a short amount of time. And I, I relatively still, short. I still you may you may disagree, but I still consider it the prototype for what would become Fort Fisher. Yeah, I mean, well, that was my thing. So Fort Fisher gets a lot of the the love because yeah. it was there at the mouth of the river. It, it had a two battles, right? Yeah. But what was Fort Anderson's role? I mean, I, one thing I thought was interesting was after the yellow fever epidemic of 1862, mm-hmm. which we've yeah. covered on here, it became a quarantine center, at right. least partially. And so it seemed to have had several different roles over time to kind of function in whatever the Confederacy needed it to. Would that be correct? Yeah. Well, uh, again, initially it was built to protect the water approaches to Wilmington and the Wilmington Road from Smithville to Wilmington. Uh, then, as you said, after the yellow fever epidemic, it became a quarantine station where blockade, incoming blockade runners had to stop for inspection uh, and quarantine for upwards to 30 days. Mm-hmm. Now, that process could be expedited depending on how much the blockade running, running captains wanted to bribe the yeah. quarantine officers. <laughs> and what you had on board. Year. And the and time, time of year, year too. Right? Wintertime, in and out. Pretty quick. Well, true, because that's what ended up squashing the yellow fever. But Right. But yeah. they didn't know they that. They didn't know no, that. Right. But, but during <laughs> the sickly season, during the warm months, mm-hmm. that process could take up to 30 days. And it was more what I'm – some of the research that I'm doing and, and just accounts that I'm, fall, I'm, I'm you know, stumbling upon, it's appearing like there's fewer and fewer, as the war progresses, fewer and fewer blockade runners going all the way up to Wilmington. They're making it as far as Anderson – offloading their cargoes. So military stores, when they're offloaded, are sent specifically to Wilmington to be put on the trains and sent elsewhere. Private stores, which there were some, were put into warehouses at Anderson, and it was up to the owners to dispose of them. But in August of 64, I found an account, there was 13 blockade runners anchored or tied up at Anderson. That's a lot, especially thinking about right there. It also is interesting to think about how bustling it was at that time when a century earlier, it was a port. It was a huge Correct. port. It was a, it was bustling again. It was just for different purposes. Right. Um, so it really is living this kind of eerily similar second life of, of being an active port. What would life have been like for people at this fort? Because <laughs> you are between Fort Fisher, you're between Wilmington. As I've read, there really wasn't much to do but work and, you know, just mess around, I guess. Work and what? Yeah, exactly. Work and what? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so what was life like? I mean, it seemed kind of, you know, you're out there on the river. I mean, I thought it was interesting. They had to fend off alligators. Like, <laughs> yeah. was, that's interesting. Between the alligators, the ticks and the mosquitoes. Yeah, they were pretty busy. Nothing like a southern uh, yeah. southern summer. Boring. Yeah. yeah. Tedious. During the summer months, you can imagine the heat and the humidity Oof. and you know, they said that when they were working and they'd just get covered in sand and you, you just couldn't get the sand off of you. And, of course, combined with the sweat. And it's uh, miserable. It's just a miserable ex- existence. And unlike today where we can go inside and take a hot shower, get cleaned up, we've got air conditioning, what were those guys to do? You know? Jump in the river. But then again, they didn't, they <laughs> yeah. didn't, they didn't know. But they yeah. didn't, yeah. Right. They didn't know what the alternative was that's right, right. yeah right the modern day alternative that's right and yeah there was there was as far as excitement goes i mean at least at fort fisher occasionally they get to lob shells at the union fleet same yeah. at fort caswell but at anderson no i mean their excitement would be a blockade runner coming in but they could also go out into the woods and go hunting and, and they did and they were relic hunting and they did yeah. So you found you ways didn't have to, to shoot deer your time. Because yeah. in those days you had free reign of uh, sheep and cattle. And, yeah. you know, so if uh, you couldn't find deer, you just shot a cow. Yeah. We talked about manpower. Let's talk about firepower. Um, you installed a 32 pounder cannon on a gun emplacement at Fort Anderson. Correct. Uh, end of last year, I was there. It was fascinating to watch. Um, and I'm curious. When people see that, if they go out to Fort Anderson, and, and I encourage people to, when they see that, how many of those would Fort Anderson have been packing? I mean, what was the what was the artillery that Fort Anderson had at its disposal? Originally, there was 15 guns, right. and that's when what we call the Brunswick Point Battery was active, the small, the small two-gun battery, but it only held 24-pounders. And then you had, it was pierced for 11 32-pounders, mm-hmm. and... Only for a brief period of time did it hold those 11 guns. There was an emplacement directly behind St. Philip's Church, which covered the, a defile between the pond and another pond over on Sunny Point. Then you had five 32-pounders mounted in Battery B, five mounted on Battery A, which actually paralleled the river. The gun on the far end of Battery A was removed sometime in the summer of 1864 and sent to the obstructions. So in the end, there's only 10 32-pounders, which was perfectly adequate for what they were defending because, like like we said earlier, that, that channel kind of meandered as it approached and then came in close so those guns could handle anything any wooden ship coming by well and one thing that i just thought was incredibly smart and just interesting to think about was they pretty much also booby trapped the river Correct. with spikes with i don't remember i'm trying what they were they called piling, sawyer sawyers pilings there was chains, chains yeah chains. Right. Yep. so they would stretch chains across the river i mean or oh, yeah. certain parts wow that's yeah, impressive yeah. Yeah, apparently they built obstructions out to the channel. So taking old ballastone and brick, they built kind of a, a, a wall out to the, the channel and, I don't know, maybe erected a post uh, on the other side of the channel, and they actually chained off the channel right. so wow. the ships could not get up and down. I uh, think there was three places they did that, Castle, <clears throat> Anderson, and then right up here where the Brunswick River. Because I remember in. reading a quote in your book, Chris, where they were talking about how they – 
once they get to a certain point and Fort Anderson is surrendered, they had to remove the chains so that they could that, actually get to Wilmington. That, that's right. But it was also mined with what in those days they called torpedoes. We'd call them mines yeah. today. Uh, both wow. uh, uh, floating yeah, wooden floating kegs. kegs and then the galvanics. Yeah, which were galvanics. Were the, they were the smart weapons. Huh. The, this is we're talking push button technology. Now it's really? not the simple. You push the button, and something happens. No, you push the button and hope that something happens. Yeah, you push <laughs> it, you hold it, you tap your foot, you wait. Yeah, because when what you're doing is it's all direct current. So yeah. when you push the button, you're closing the circuit, and the electricity can flow. Huh. So depending on the condition of the wire, the gauge of the wire, the length of the wire, even water temperature will determine, and the strength of your batteries will determine how long it takes to charge to go from the torpedo battery to the torpedo. So it wasn't something that you put all your hopes and dreams on. It's just no. something that you, you had at your disposal and you could use. And but it, it was something work. that frightened. It was it frightened the U.S. Navy more than the fort did itself. Wow, interesting. These things could hold up to a thousand pounds of gunpowder. Right, big giant iron, not not, not cylinders. But they're boilers. They're usually yeah, they're old, big, boilers. Giant old boilers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. If you go to Fort Fisher, they've got an original one in their um, exhibit hall, and that one we estimate anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds. Wow. So they weren't they they knew what they were doing, and and they 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 didn't leave it. I don't want to say up to chance, but it wasn't just the fort that they were using to protect Wilmington. Correct. It was it was, it was the river. I mean, it was, it was yeah, everything it was they could. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And and the basically the other use for Fort Anderson, starting in late summer of eighteen sixty four, was to be the assembly point for the torpedoes. So you have you have the the torpedo bureau setting up shop in the fort. They're assembling these range keg torpedoes. They're assembling the, the galvanic torpedoes. And the first ones are going to be deployed in the river off Fort Caswell in September. Then they start putting them, deploying them in New Inlet and around Fort Fisher. And the ones, the landmines were all deployed. I mean, they were all assembled and everything at Fort Fisher. Yeah. But they, they were even those smart push-button Interesting. But again, new technology. So yeah, yeah. hoped against hope that it worked. But even the appearance uh, uh, of these uh, of these weapons brought great fear to the Union blockading ships and to the armies that eventually uh, well, came to attack the area. They don't know what's out there at no. that point. They hear rumors of it or, or, or right. whatnot. And, and even the people who are operating it don't really know how it's going to work in the end. But you know, they at least have it. And so that probably does leave people a little uneasy as they start approaching oh, Fort Anderson. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you, you're looking at that, you know, from the U.S. Navy standpoint, that river is full of Yankee catchers and infernal machines, mm-hmm. which is what they referred to those. The, you know, the, wow. the, the, the obstructions were Yankee catchers. Yeah. And in fact, after the fort fell and federal uh, the uh, ships were moving up the river towards Wilmington, uh, one vessel called the Thorn uh, was actually blown up by one of these um, uh, torpedoes. And that was a month after Fort Anderson fell. Yeah, that was in March of 1865. And unfortunately, she was carrying recently released prisoners who had made their way to Wilmington who had been in Andersonville. Prisoners Luckily, for? Prisoners of war. Prisoners of war for Union, which? Union yeah, prisoners, prisoners of war. war. Okay. Luckily, um, when, it, when, the, when the ship hit it, it sank in shallow water, no casualties. Oh, okay. That's good. And then the ship was later raised. It took about a huh. month. They raised it and repaired it. Now, during this time, 
the men who are stationed at Fort Anderson and more and more come from other forts as they start to shut down, conditions get really bad for them because yep. they also shut down traffic on the river to bring supplies. Uh, there's lack of food. They require hunting. And there's just low morale, it sounded like. Low morale? I mean, there's nowhere to put all these men. I mean, you're talking about a garrison that's got housing adequate for maybe 250 men tops. All right. After Fort Fisher Falls, you've got roughly 900 displaced heavy artillery, light artillery, coast guards, engineers, medical from Fort Castle, Fort Johnston, or Fort Pender, Fort Holmes, all those installations south that move into the fort. Then you have Haygood's Brigade of Hoax Division, 900 infantry, South Carolina infantry, being put into the fort. So you got a fort that swells to what? 2,300 soldiers. Yeah. So They're that's everywhere. 10 times more soldiers in the fort to actually hold. That, than, than the, uh, the housing uh, could uh, accommodate. So these guys were literally building lean-tos and makeshift shelters in the back of the trenches. And as it turns out, that particular winter was extremely cold and very wet. Uh, Letter after letter from soldiers on both sides talk about how miserable that winter was. Of course, that being the winter that's super harsh. Exactly. The luck of all the people fighting on both sides. Which was just like the 150th. (laughs) <laughs> the 150 was brutal. But yeah, the, the infantry is literally, again, learning what they learned at or using what they learned in Petersburg in the trenches. They just adapted the earthworks at Fort Anderson and built their built their shelters. They lived in the trenches. The infantry wow. did. The artillery, we believe, built temporary shelters behind Battery A. There's just a huge area. There's just a huge area that um, there, there's these chimneys falls. Yeah. And, you know, the archaeology that we've done there, you know, is, is for the most part inconclusive, but there's enough evidence that they were used temporarily by the troops. I found one letter from William Calder, who was with the 1st Battalion, North Carolina Heavy Artillery, and he was a Wilmington boy. And uh, he said that they, they built kind of a lean-to shelter up against the back of the earthworks on the west end of the mm-hmm. fort. And he just said one night it was just raining so hard and the water was pooling up underneath their bedding. And he said, we, we, we couldn't sleep. We had a big fire going. He said, but I just I got up and I just, you know, stood around the fire for the rest of the night. You just absolutely couldn't sleep. It wasn't a hospitable place. No, if nothing no else. by no means. So... On our Fort Fisher episode, I asked John Mosley, what was the ultimate downfall of Fort Anderson? I mean, Fort Fisher. For Fort Anderson, what was the thing that ended up forcing them to recognize their situation and uh, evacuate? I mean, what, what caused the end of Fort Anderson? Was it strategy? Was it just the might of the Union? I mean, once Grant got, got behind it, they went for it. I mean, what caused the downfall? It, it, well, I, to me, it's, it was an open gorge fortification. Open mm-hmm. gorge meaning... It doesn't have a back wall. Okay. Same as same as Fort Fisher. And yes, if the Federals had stayed, if they had kept their advance between the river and Orton Pond, I don't know if it would have fallen easily. Mm-hmm. It eventually numb sheer numbers, but yeah. it would have been very costly. But the fact that uh, General Cox could take half his troops and maneuver around Orton Pond and get into the rear of the fort, that was it. Yeah. Just kind of falls after that. And morale. 
Yeah. <laughs> it did seem like, you know, yeah. just reading some of those accounts, people, you know, this is four years into the war almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, people are tired. They're exhausted. And now they're sleeping outside in the rain and the cold with no shoes and barely any food. I mean, they they see it out and, you know, they take it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there was a, an attempt at a peace negotiation in Hampton Roads in early February of 1865. In Virginia. In Virginia, right. right. And that really uh, excited uh, Confederate soldiers particularly um, because they saw how the war was going. And we have accounts of uh, regular desertions from Fort Anderson mm-hmm. into Union lines. Uh, again, the information, the documentation is, is not great, so we can't really quantify it, but we just know that soldiers were deserting on a regular basis. Um, so morale was low. Morale was somewhat heightened, if only temporarily, by the news of a peace negotiation. But when all that collapsed, then morale plummeted again. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, these uh, garrison troops now probably whittled down to about 2,000 men. They're facing an armada, naval armada of about 30 vessels, including an ironclad uh, monitor called the Montauk Mm -hmm. uh, that had been brought up to the Cape Fear River specifically for operations against Fort Anderson and uh, Wilmington. Uh, Then you've got a division of uh, Army troops led by, as Jim said, uh, Major General Jacob Cox that had been transferred after landing at Fort Fisher over to the west side of the river to attack uh, Fort Anderson. So they're facing 6,000 troops, and then they were reinforced by a division of white troops that had helped capture Fort Fisher. So uh, overwhelming number of yeah. enemy forces that they're, uh, they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Jim said, once they maneuvered uh, into the rear of the fort, uh, which was its weak point, there really was nothing else to do but to uh, to evacuate the fort and retreat towards Wilmington. Yeah. And then we know what happens after that. Wilmington does eventually fall less right. than a month later. What happens oh, to— Only oh, three oh, days. Three, three days, sorry. Three days after the— <laughs> Was it Washington's birthday? Yes. Yeah. So um, the fort's abandoned in the pre-dawn hours of uh, February 19th, yep. and Wilmington falls on 22nd. February 22nd. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking of Fort Fisher again. What happens to Fort Anderson? You know, after Brunswick Town— you know, was abandoned eventually for the most part. Nature kind of overcomes mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. What happens to Fort Anderson in the years after the war? Fort Anderson in the immediate aftermath by the end of March of 1865 is being used by the Freedmen's Bureau as a refugee camp. And this is all new research. I mean, we've known it was used as a, as a refugee camp. It was only supposed to be used from the end of March to June 1st. And it was only supposed to hold 1,500 refugees. But in reality, um, it held at its peak in May of 1865, 3,500. Wow. And we're finding a major tragedy occurred there. We're pretty sure it was smallpox that, right. that hit the refugees. Depending on whose accounts you read, if there's we've got U.S. Surgeon's report that says 2,000 people in nine weeks died. Wow. We've got... Um, uh, a missionary eyewitness who estimates a thousand in nine weeks. So you're talking about a major calamity that occurred there. There's very little known. Who would these refugees have been? These would have been African-Americans primarily. That's what I figured. These were um, principally African-Americans, slaves who 
uh, left their farms and plantations and attached themselves to the coattail of General Sherman's army as he marched through South Carolina uh, in February of 1865 and into North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So that by the time he got to Fayetteville on March 11th, there were somewhere between 20 and 25,000 refugees. And, uh, of course, the Army had to care for them. They had to feed them yeah. and clothe them. And they became um, an impediment to his military operations. And he knew a showdown with Confederate forces was likely in North Carolina. So he had to rid the Army of the refugees. And because Wilmington had recently fallen, he uh, sent the refugees away from the Army down the Cape Fear River to Wilmington. And they arrived in March of 1865, uh, although we believe somewhere between eight and 10,000 refugees came to Wilmington. But right. then what do you do with them? Wilmington's a town of 10,000 people. Yeah. Now you've got 14,500 Union occupation troops, and you've got 10,000 recently released Union prisoners of war, and you've got eight to 10,000 refugees. There were probably 40,000 people in Wilmington that was built to accommodate one-fourth that number. Yeah. So they took the refugees and they dispersed them into abandoned farms, plantations, and fortifications because there was housing. There was. Uh, it might not be great housing, but it was housing. But it was housing. But it was something. Barracks. Yeah. Uh, and as Jim said, um, many hundreds of them, thousands maybe, were sent uh, to Fort Anderson, which became a freedman's colony, mm-hmm. and not temporarily, but long, More, yeah, we, for a long finding, time, right? We're finding them May of 1867. Wow. They're still there. S- much Two years smaller after numbers. the war ends. Right. Much smaller numbers by then. We're talking only— 150 by then, but you also they had consolidated Fort Anderson with Orton, Kendall, and Lilliput plantations. Mm-hmm. So this 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 basically Fort Anderson. It's called Fort Anderson Farms. Mm-hmm. Wow! So they were supposed to uh, farm, provide for themselves because the military really didn't have the resources to provide for them. But then ultimately they would be uh, sent. Uh, back to South Carolina, and many of them sent to the Sea Islands of North mm-hmm. Carolina of, of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, so eventually, they w- were dispersed, but many of them stayed on. And in fact, in the case of uh, Lawrence um, Lawrence Brunt, no, well, um, we're having senior moments here. <laughs> we have an example of one yeah. uh, African American uh, who was still living there at the turn of the twentieth century. Oh wow. Yeah, okay. and he, he was discovered by the Jeffrey Lawrence. Jeffrey Lawrence. Jeffrey Lawrence. It. And he was actually discovered by uh, Luella Sprunt and okay. uh, became a favorite of the Sprunt family and actually ended up working with the Sprunts and died at their home yep. in uh, um, Wilmington, uh, the Dudley Mansion so on, on Front Street. What would have been the reason for those conditions to deteriorate so much? Would it have been the conditions that the Confederate soldiers were dealing with? You know, poor supplies, you know, just weather, all these things that could have spawned some type of medical epidemic or or smallpox. Well, unfortunately, there was well, there was three acting assistant surgeons stationed with the refugees that the army had had put in there. According to the U.S. Sur- the chief U.S. surgeon, they left no records. They did not have adequate medical supplies. Um, so what we're thinking happened was you get all these people. They're destitute. They have nothing. They're probably already in poor health. Mm-hmm. They're not used to the environment on the coast. 
so all it takes is just a spark with yeah. with smallpox and it spreads yeah. and it just what we're what we're thinking's happening is if it if it's with that many people if it breaks out in other places they're probably sending them to anderson yeah. now there was one other post that was used the same way and that was smith island which was fort holmes mm-hmm. And you talk, you see, a, you, there there was a, a fairly high death rate at Fort Holmes, but not anywhere near what was at Fort Anderson. And that's Baldhead Island. That's Baldhead, yeah. yeah. right? When, and this is all new stuff yeah, yeah. within a year that we've wow. located. And Jim's discovered. looking at these uh, these records mm-hmm. now. Um, one of our questions is, where are these people buried? <laughs> that's we haven't found. We have no cemeteries. Interesting. I didn't think about that. And you're talking about more than likely, you're talking about a mass grave. Well, if you think about yellow fever here in Wilmington, that was 650 mm-hmm. people, you know, give or take probably more. Um, and there were so many people dying at a rate then that they were having to put them in that communal grave at, at right. Oakdale Cemetery that we spoke about. So if you think about, you know, a thousand, maybe two thousand people dying at that rate, it would have to be a math. You wouldn't. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know. the, the missionary that who whose account that that we have. He states he saw hundreds, if not thousands, of lone, solitary headboards. But where? But where? Where, where is everyone? That's a big question. Wow. And unfortunately, Fort Anderson encompasses a large area. Yeah. They could be anywhere from the river to Orton Pond, which True. is well over a mile. When you when you drive out to Fort Anderson in Brunswick Town, I mean— you get out there, and it takes a. You have to wind through through the country a little bit. Oh yeah, um, and so much of the remains of the fort are still on private property. Exactly, yeah. or on the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or Sunny Point. Fort Anderson starts to be salvaged when Brunswick Town does in the '60s. Correct. Correct. So <laughs> by accident. By accident. <laughs> but so it almost seems like as much as I, you know, we spoke about at the very beginning about. It almost seeming, at least to me, to be disrespectful to build something on top of something that was so important. It almost helped it because they're salvaged together. I mean, they're oh, yeah. they're excavated together by people, you know, like Stanley South and stuff like that, who who recognized the importance and started digging. Well, one of the things that that actually saved both Fort Anderson and Brunswick Town was an event that occurred a year after the fall of Fort Anderson, and that's when the Revenue Cutter Service, which is now the U.S. Coast Guard would occasionally use the old Civil War wharf, you know, the old Fort Anderson wharf. And one evening in March of 66, Revenue Cutter vessel was was tied up at the dock. And the Northerner. The Northerner, yeah. <laughs> Two African-American sailors wandered into the fort and wandered into one of the bomb proofs, which just happened to be the magazine. And being sailors, they were smart. They had their candle lantern, but when they struck the match to light the candle... They just dropped the match, not realizing all the kegs of black powder had been broken open. Oh, wow. They both survived. Luckily. Sort of. Yeah. One lived two days. They were mortally injured. One was. One was. One was. was. One was mortally. One one was brought up to a hospital in Wilmington, and we don't know what happened to him in the end. He died. He did die? Yeah. He. Well, both of them were taken to Wilmington. One died. And the other one lived. Okay. But that made national news. Because I mean, it blew up, correct? It blew yeah. up. Yeah. And they were all afraid 
it was a repeat of Fort Fisher's magazine. Uh, yeah. But then that after blew up the investigation, yeah. they realized no, it was it was isolated incident. But I found accounts in Oregon in Oregon newspapers. Wow. So how did that save them? Because it brought attention to it. Well, no, it made that pl- it made it taboo. He, it, there's that place can still uh, it's still volatile, still dangerous. So exactly, don't go on shore to the fort. It's still a very dangerous place. Yeah, yeah. And, but it also um, the property was owned by uh, the uh, the Sprunt family eventually, mm-hmm. and uh, so it became private property again. Mm-hmm. And um, so it wasn't accessible to the public. To just start building things on or digging it up or something right. like that. It was, and you right. you found what it was it was in the eighteen eighties when the veterans started going back there for the mm-hmm. first time. So it was twenty years mm-hmm. after the war that the veterans start going back. And then ten in the late eighteen nineties is when the colonial dames come out there mm-hmm. and their focus is strictly the church and Russellboro. And oh yeah. Fort Anderson's here too, but there were still enough veterans that they could talk about okay. know, the fort. Does that carry through now? Because I know that Jim, I know you and I have had conversations about how there's still artillery in those oh, yeah. in those mounds that are still at Fort Anderson. In fact, you told me to look after I went out there after for uh, Hurricane Florence, and you could see some of the discoloration coming from underneath them. So what 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 do you know is out there, or what do you think's out there? Well, we got lucky. I got lucky in that Jim Keith, I think it was in 2014, my Christmas present was a copy of an inventory of the of the fort, of Fort Anderson. It's a complete inventory right down to the serial numbers on the guns, how many rounds of ammunition, everything. So we have an idea of what should be there. We still don't have, we don't have a clue what was shot, but more than likely there's not any more than what was on that 1864 inventory. But what it appears is there's there was four bomb proofs constructed, two in, in battery A, two in battery B, and we're pretty sure they were using those also for ready ammunition. So instead of having to leave shells and powder out, they were putting them in these bomb proofs, which are in amongst the gun placements. We, uh, we ran magnetometer over two of them. The, the magnetic signature in both of them is identical. Hmm. And then after all the rain we had in 2018, one of them started bleeding rust. And it was just running right down the, the sidewalk. Yeah, you could see it for you a while. Yeah. No, you still can. You can, yeah. You still can. So is it just that that's what remained there? You know, they they fled. So th- as as I read, you know, they they left everything. You know, they didn't yeah. they didn't yeah. destroy much as you would if you were trying to keep your fort out of you know enemy hands. Right. So they just left things just there. Left they left the uh, artillery pieces in place. Mm-hmm. They did not even bother to spike the guns, driving a nail into the vent hole uh, to prevent them mm-hmm. from being ser- uh, usable. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just abandoned the place. They just walked out. Yeah, yeah literally. And, and what we think happened is after, after the magazine exploded in March, we think the Army might have come in and just covered up the doorways. Then again, they might have covered up the doorways when they abandoned the fort anyway. Yeah. But if they did, why didn't they cover up that doorway on the magazine? So I yeah. think it was after the magazine explosion because – you read accounts up to eighteen, up into the eight, early eighteen seventies, 
where African-Americans, locals, are going out there and doing scrap drives. They're salvaging shells. I mean, I've got an account of, of three individuals taking a, a, a like an 11-inch shell up here to Wilmington Ironworks to dispose of it or to turn it in, and they wouldn't take it because it still had the fuse in it, and they made them inert it in the yard, and it blew up. Yeah. Wow. Just says a lot, a lot of live ammunition that was oh, yeah. left behind. Yeah. So there's a lot of ammunition still in these bomb proofs. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, they'll eventually be excavated. The bomb proofs yeah. will be excavated. But can what, they what, be? what happened to yeah, the cannons? What happened to the cannons? Yeah. We don't know what yeah. happened to the cannons. The, the, the paper trail on the artillery disappears on June 6, 1865, where it says all ordnance on the west bank of the river, with the exception of Fort Johnston, is to be loaded up and sent to Wilmington. All the ordnance on the east bank is to be, except for Fort Fisher, is to be loaded up and sent to Fort Fisher. And then it was to be shipped out. So they would have been scrapped. They would have been scrapped. It sounds like Fort Anderson didn't have a traditional end, you know, because really, if if you're if you're trying to save it um, left with a whimper, (laughs) it left with a whimper. Yeah. Fisher went out with a bang. I, uh, I, I think that that is such a fascinating end to you know you look at fort fisher you look at fort anderson and there's just two you know they're so close but they're two very different stories well you think about the heaviest fighting Mm -hmm. at fort anderson was between the 104th ohio and the 25th south carolina bands oh yeah yeah (laughs) one of my favorite stories battle of the bands (laughs) we've got a, a new york reporter who said that at the height of the fighting on february the 18th now remember that two brigades of troops are are maneuvering to outflank the fort by going around the west end of Wharton Pond, which is a 10-mile detour. Uh, but they left two brigades of Union troops in front, of, just south of the fort mm-hmm. uh, to demonstrate, as the jargon went, to give the Confederates inside the fort the impression that uh, a frontal assault m- may occur at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can imagine the roar of battle between the Confederate artillery firing on the Navy ships the ships firing their big uh, 9-inch, 11-inch Dahlgren guns at the fort, and then the, the small, uh, the light artillery firing uh, you know, on both sides, and then the rattling of rifle musketry. So there's just this roar of battle. And one Union reporter said that um, uh, to dilute the insanity, I think, of the, of the war, of the fighting, uh, the band, the Drum and Bugle Corps of the 104th Ohio Infantry started playing, he said, national airs. Uh, so Battle Cry of Freedom and Johnny Comes Marching Home, that kind of stuff. And they said that then they could hear the sounds of a band coming from inside the fort. And so we're convinced that the Confederates inside the fort heard the 104th Ohio band playing, so the Utah band of the 25th South Carolina started playing Southern songs, yep. Dixie, Bonnie Blue Flag, and uh, the Union reporter said, one song we clearly recognized, Who's Been Here While I've Been Gone. Yeah. So they're trying to send a message to those boys <laughs> from Illinois, Indiana, yeah. Kentucky, who's minding the home fires uh, while y'all are down here fighting usins. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a battle of the bands. That's fascinating. Going over yeah. the top of the conventional battle. Well, at least they had music. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. During this during this terrible time, at least they had good I, music. They had a soundtrack. Battle <laughs> soundtrack. Soundtrack of Fort Anderson. And 104th was one of my favorite Union regiments because it was nicknamed the Barking Dog Regiment because of all the dogs and all the mascots. They had dogs, wow. uh, raccoons, squirrels. Wow. Everything. Yeah. And they had one famous dog named Harvey, and he's actually pictured with uh, the 104th Ohio Band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they said that he he just got so excited in battle that he'd run around <laughs> barking. So you can imagine yeah. you've got uh, the roar of fighting, you've got bands playing, and you've got pets running around dogs. Barks. That sounds like chaos, honestly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. At least they had entertainment if it, you know. Yeah. If, or as, if my, or as my grandmother used to say, pandelirium. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I like that. So Ford Anderson had quite an end it's you know a little bit of a whimper but at least it sounds like there was some action there at the end with with the pandemonium this story is really big and i would encourage anyone who wants to learn more not just about fort anderson but also about brunswick town to go visit the brunswick town fort anderson state historic site which is a mouthful and when you're writing it in print (laughs) it takes up a whole line by itself um btfa there you go there you go um but you have a really unique opportunity coming up if you're listening to this episode when it comes out, uh, because just like at Fort Anderson, this this month is the 155th anniversary of the fall of Fort Anderson. And out at the State Historic Site, you guys are doing a big event on the 15th and the 16th. So what is going to be happening out there, Jim? Well, on the 15th and 16th during the day from 10 to 3, we're going to have living history going on. Uh, infantry, artillery, we'll, we'll be firing the big guns. And by the way, we have two big guns now. Uh, mm. We have the 32-pounder and we have a Navy 30-pound Parrot. There you go. Um, so we'll be demonstrating those. We'll also have field artillery. Uh, we'll have infantry demonstrations, like I said, medical. Um, we have... One of the one of the more unique interpretations in that we will be interpreting and demonstrating uh, Civil War embalming, which is something most people don't think about. We're also we're also revamping. And rightly so. And yeah. rightly yeah. so. Yeah. That's yeah. not something I want to keep me up. Yeah, That's a dead subject. Yeah. But we also are revamping our torpedo demonstrations. Okay. So that's going to be there's going to be more detailed. Uh, interpretation and demonstration for our torpedoes. We're actually going to try to blow up a boat. Nice. Not a big boat, just a little one. But, it, yeah, it's, and, and almost everything's going to be interactive, as interactive as possible. You don't get to blow up the boat, though. That You guys will handle that. Yeah, we'll handle that. <laughs> but um, the evening of, that Saturday evening, February 15th, is a very, very special program. Plunging shot and screaming shells. And that is going to be the last hours of Fort Anderson. It'll start at 6 o'clock in the evening and go until about 7.30. This will be an immersive event for the visitors. Um, and it'll be basically a nighttime artillery duel between the fort and the U.S. Navy. And also, because we've got the 32-pounder and the 30-pound Parrot, this will be the first time in North Carolina since 1865 that heavy artillery is actually going to duel one another. Wow. You'll feel it. You'll see it. You'll smell it. Everything. <laughs> you'll hear it. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, you know, one of the concerns we have is, depending on the conditions, the gunfire might be heard in Wilmington, just like it would have been heard in 1865. Mm-hmm. So if you hear something that night and you're not there, just yeah. war has not broken out. The war has not broken out. But... <laughs> 
you know, infantry is going to be moving in and out through the crowd. I mean, there's going to be a lot going on that night. Um, because of the heavy artillery and the other guns we're going to be using, it's, it's, we're going to burn about 75 pounds of black powder. So as a result, it's going to be $10 a person in advance. Mm-hmm. You can get tickets on Eventbrite mm-hmm. and just put in plunging shells, screaming shot. And at the gate, it'll be $15. All the daytime stuff, 10 to 3, is free. free. And as a bonus, Dr. Fondle here will be speaking both days at 1 o'clock. There you go. And I'll share all of that information about getting tickets. Um, but all three of us will be out there because yeah, I'm going to. All gonna, three of us. Hunter, Hunter's, yeah, you'll be out I'll there. I'll be out there you. representing the show and, and learning myself. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I would encourage everyone who wants to learn more about Fort Anderson. You yeah. guys are going to be pulling out all the stops to make sure that this moment is uh, – it, you know, rightfully marked and how it would have been in, in that right. time period. So, And as a bonus, for all intent and purposes, the museum and the visitor center will be, well, the museum for sure will have been rebuilt since Hurricane Florence. There so you go. We're, the plan is to finish it, everything on February 14th and be open, which is a good birthday Just present. Just in time. There you go. Yeah. Just in time. Um, and there'll be copies of my book available yes. for yes. sale, too. And I was going to mention that gift shop. And apparently exactly. the author might be there to sign There them. you go. You might, <laughs> both of them, yeah, because you write about it, too. And I was going to mention that again. One of the valuable resources of me understanding this topic and researching was the book that you wrote, Chris, and, and Jim, that you were a part of. So I would encourage everyone to go get that as well. I mean, you can get copies there. Um, so there's plenty of resources, plenty of opportunities to learn more about Fort Anderson. Uh, as I've said on the show before, um, Brunswick Town Fort Anderson is my favorite historic site, one because it's two in one. And mm-hmm. it just, it's, it's just really unique in that way. And I think that um, I said this at the top of the episode, but I just find it very ironic that Fort Anderson's second life was defending Wilmington, which was the downfall of its first. Right. And so right. I just find that to be such a, a circle of life moment. Um, so I would encourage everyone to go out to, to Brunswick Town Fort Anderson. And thank you both for being here again. It's always a pleasure. Oh, this is great fun. Thank you for having this us is, on. Our, yeah. Thank you so we'll much. We'll have you back. There'll be plenty more topics that we can uh, chat about in the future. Outstanding. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the bombardment of Fort Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me. As a reminder, we will now be debuting new episodes of the podcast every two weeks in 2020. So be sure to check back in then for the next chapter from our local history books. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to be sharing some maps and photos of Fort Anderson. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every week. In it, I will include links to our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I find in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters.
As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. Oh,